Uh, we're in a new series, and this uh, series, as with all of the ones that have been uh, uh, for the past year and a half or so, have been based on questions, and there was a question that came up quite some time ago uh, as we were talking through various elements of um, uh, doctrine. Uh, a couple of times over the past several months, it has come up that idea uh, from First Timothy that, that the woman shall be saved in childbearing, and we've talked through what that means. Uh, however, the question does come up then, okay, pastor, is the only, is, is the scripture saying that the only functional, functional role of the woman in the church is childbearing? And then if that's the case, okay, so then the women whose children are, are grown up, yes, they, they have that, that uh, opportunity to see their children serving in the church, but does that mean they're done? Uh, what about women who don't have children? Are, do they have no functional purpose? And we know that the answer to that is no, but we need to talk about why the answer to that is no. And uh, as such, we're going to go through a series of women of and in the church. The idea here being, what is the role of women in the assembly? And of course, we'll talk about what the role isn't. And that's going to be the primary focus of our first bit here, the context. So as we walk through the context, we will uh, have to walk through what the Bible is teaching us. And, and, and most of what the Bible teaches explicitly about women in the assembly is, in fact, prohibitive, saying what women are not to be doing in the assembly. And so we, we're, we'll start there. We'll walk through those things. We'll walk through the, the operative words that are used, the passages themselves, and it, it will be, we'll, we'll, we'll take it easy. We'll walk through it bit by bit here, walking through uh, what, what would otherwise be um, passages that, that maybe aren't very clear to us as a general rule regarding women in the church. And then we'll talk about what we find in the scriptures as it relates to a woman's role, some of which will naturally uh, find its place as we're talking through these um, elements of context. So, we begin with our context here, women in the church, and we're going to talk about three words. Submission, shamefacedness, and silence. And these are three words that come up within the prohibitive elements of the text as it relates to the scriptures. So we talk first about submission and the principle of submission. So when we talk about submission, and this is one of those words that has taken on a very ugly or negative connotation within society, particularly ever since the rise of specifically third wave feminism, but really all of feminism. And as we have seen that, that take over in society, the concept of submission has had a, a very negative connotation. Now, as I say that, I do not just lay it on the feet of culture because the church has done a very, very poor job historically of parsing out what proper submission is. Now, when we talk about submission, obviously we're not just talking about something that has to do with women. There are any number of contexts for submission uh, where the... the, the um, the servant is called to submit to his master, where the wife is called to submit to her husband, where children are called to submit to their parents, where we're called to submit to one another in Ephesians chapter 5, where, of course, we are asked and exhorted to submit to God. Submit to government as well, right? Citizens to their government. All of these use this concept of submission. So what is submission? It is an alignment of will and action under the direction, vision, and authority of another. 
When one is under submission, and I use he here generally, he defines his success in the success of the one unto whom he is submitted. Submission is not necessarily an outworking of value or capacity, but of design and authority. In other words, the person who is submitting is not by submitting inherently less valuable or less capable than the person unto whom he is submitting. You are not necessarily less capable or less valuable, certainly not less valuable, not less necessarily less knowledgeable or capable than your boss just because he's your boss or your pastor just because he's your pastor or certainly a government official just because he's a government official. However, there is this idea that by submission, we are aligning ourselves with the vision, the direction, the authority of another. So that if, if, if our authority says we're going in this direction, you are going in that direction. Uh, and of course, as we talk about that, we always make the caveat of we ought to obey God rather than men. We talked about that just this Sunday morning and from Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, and they are brought before the Sanhedrin specifically because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were there being uh, interrogated because they had already been commanded not to preach in Christ's name. And their reply was, we ought to obey God rather than men. So we see that principle in the scripture that when an earthly authority contradicts with a heavenly authority, that the authority of, of God in heaven overrides or overrules the authority of man on earth. That being said, and I didn't mention this this Sunday, when I choose to obey God rather than man, that doesn't mean that the authority of man is not going to punish me for that. Because it is very possible that if I choose to obey God rather than man, that the earthly authority is going to see that as a fundamental threat to their authority and is thus going to deal with me uh, accordingly. And as we look into history, of course, this has not gone well for the Christian church when they have chosen to obey God rather than men. Uh, you see lots of very, very terrible, terrible things in history as far as the kinds of death and torture and such that Christians uh, were asked to endure for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ um, because they chose not to submit themselves to the authority of man above the authority of God. So this is our, our running definition of submission. And then we're going to um, boil this down to women's submission in the church. And, and some, some of that's going to come back when we talk about the, the word silence. Any thoughts, questions, concerns, addendums, disagreements with the concept of submission here and the basic definition of submission? Okay, so I'd like to take us to two different principles of submission in the scriptures and talk about them as it relates to female submission in the church. And the first one we're going to talk about is in 1 Corinthians 11, which is um, the, the more practical teaching on submission, and that's related to head coverings on women. So we are going to go there and talk through this together. This has been one that among we who desire to follow the word of God and we who take a, a tact of interpreting scripture whereby we interpret literally, grammatically, contextually, inter uh, historically, uh, this is one of the passages that people have 
not only differing opinions on, but many have struggled with throughout the years. We see this command about head coverings in Scripture, and the question is, what are we supposed to do about it as it relates to our own churches? So Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this is the same passage where we find the Lord's table. Uh, I go there quite regularly then, right? Uh, Once a month, I don't always go to 1 Corinthians 11, but we talk about this passage, and uh, this is just the first chunk of it before we get to the Lord's table section. So, Paul's writing, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now that word ordinances there that we have here is a word that means traditions. Um, uh, you, you see there transmissions, precepts, and then it says that uh, specifically Jewish traditionary law. Now I'm just reading there from... Uh, what is uh, Mickelson Strong's there. And so we, we have this idea, and, and the concept of ordinances are things that are established in the church. Now, when we talk about the ordinances of the church, we pare them down to two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances that we believe are essential that Jesus Christ instituted that he has called all of his followers to, to observe. We see the, the, the ordinance of baptism even in the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then we see the ordinance of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, right here in this, in this chapter on ordinances. Interestingly enough, within this chapter of ordinances, we also find Paul's teaching here on the Lord's table, which was one of, uh, uh, on head coverings, which was another ordinance that was established by Paul, not by Jesus. Jesus did not command on it, but by Paul within the Christian church. Uh, We know that the Jewish church uh, had other ordinances as well. I alluded to them on last Sunday and the Sunday before also. Recall that when in Acts chapter 15, when the Jerusalem council was talking to Paul about the nature of Gentile salvation and Gentiles in the church, they made a request of Paul that, that he request the Gentile believers, though they didn't have to be circumcised and they didn't have to eat kosher, to not eat things strangled, not eat the blood, and to avoid idolatry, to keep themselves from idols, idolatry. And as I mentioned, this is not something, obviously idols was something that Paul talked about, but he did not ever carry forward the ordinances of not eating things strangled or not eating things, not eating the blood into any of his teachings in the epistles. So we do see some ordinances that the Jewish Christians had. We see some ordinances that, that Paul taught, and this being one of those, specifically this ordinance of head coverings. So can you, can you think of any other, while we're on the topic, can you think of any other ordinances? Well, let's do this. Can you think of any, uh, well, we'll start here, any other ordinances that Paul establishes in the New Testament? If we, if we were to, I, I, this is off the top of my head too, so I'm trying to think through it also. Um, we know that there was a, uh, associated with the Lord's table was a, 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 what's called a feast of charity or a love feast. So we might uh, imagine that with some that was what they would consider an ordinance or a tradition that they, that, that, that they carried through. Um, 
And then as we look at various church contexts today, we find that various churches have various ordinances of their own, right? They'll have observances, and uh, those will be different per culture. Different cultures have different ordinances. Uh, different denominations have different ordinances. And, uh, of course, we think of the liturgical denominations, the Lutherans, the Catholics, and, the, of course, the Catholics call their sacraments because they've elevated them beyond just traditions to laws, right? So they have sacraments and those sorts of things. Um, but we, we do see here this idea of ordinances. Um, he says, then, as he, as he praises them for keeping these ordinances... He says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. So Paul presents here, as we're talking about submission, a hierarchy. The head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And then, of course, the head of Christ is God. Now, as we think through that, 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 that checks out, right? When we see Jesus in the garden, he says... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was, in fact, submitted to the Father. And we see his submission, his absolute submission. Jesus, throughout the course of his ministry, that he cannot say or do anything that is outside of what the Father has commanded him to do. We see it when he is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. We see it when uh, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see his submission from beginning to end. And then... We see from that hierarchy, father to son to man to woman. And the head of, of the man is Christ. And so we have this head, and that be our authority over us. And then the woman's head is the man. Now, we, we are careful to state here that there's a design, and then there's, uh, there's, there's two, a twofold element of design here. The first, we might understand to be a broader context of design that God has designed men to be in society leaders, in the church leaders, in the home leaders. And then we also see the, the next uh, element down, which is the husband-wife relationship, right? So I do not stand here and say every woman in this church is under my authority and needs to submit to me. No, I have a wife and she is under my authority and she is called to submit to me. The other wives and women in this room are not called to submit to me as a Husband, perhaps as a, as a pastor in the same way any other man or woman would in the church. But it's that, that's, it's the, the, the general hierarchy is not any singular man is able to command any singular woman. But rather we do see the husband-wife relationship. And then we see a, 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 a general societal design whereby God has designed and intended men to be the leaders in civil society, in the home, in, in all, all three of those elements of, of, of society that we talked about on Sunday, right? You have the family, you have the uh, government, and then you have the church. And in all three of those, God has designed men to be the head. Questions, thoughts on that? Now, when we talk about examples, we'll find that just because this is the design doesn't mean that's always how it goes, right? We know that there were, uh, we, we see in the Old Testament, Deborah, the prophetess, right? And we recognize that, that God chose her um, to judge over Israel. And um, we, 
see various examples of times where women do lead in various ways and in various contexts for various reasons. Exceptions do not disprove rules. We see a general model, and we, we recognize that there are times and seasons in history where that model needs to be upended. It doesn't mean, and again, this comes back to our definition of submission, doesn't mean that women are less capable. It doesn't mean that women are inferior. It does not mean that they are reduced in value. As a matter of fact, as the scriptures presented, it's the opposite. Women are significantly more valuable as, as not, not human dignity-wise, but as a part of society. It's why men will spend, will, will go to war, will, will spend their lives providing to meet the needs of and protecting women because they are, and children because they're so valuable to society. But that's the general hierarchy that we see. Now, he says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. Now, we have a very interesting construction here. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Okay, so we have head and head, and the head of every man is Christ. So we're using head in two contexts here. We're using head as this thing on top of your neck, and we're using head as the one who is in authority over the other. And we actually see this somewhat clearly in the Greek. So if I take you to the Greek here... um, So, um, uh, kefale is our word for head here. And, um, hang on just a sec. Okay. So, he says, I would... I would have you understand that the head, and notice here, we have kephale here, the head of uh, that, that, um, that, and this is men, the head of man is, is Christ. But, or and, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ, God. Now notice here when we see head, there is this hey or this ha afterward. Now, this is our article. So it would be like the. It, it makes it a definite, it's a definite article, making this um, word definite, emphasizing identity rather than, than, than character. But then when we go into our, our explanations here, every man praying or prophesying, uh, again, uh, um, having... His head, um, is it, hang on. Oh, no, it's against. Okay, so dishonors. So every man praying or prophesying dishonors his head, having that head uncovered. His head uncovered. And, or covered, excuse me. And every woman praying or prophesying uncovered the head, 
Um, dishonors her own head for in she is uh, for that's the same as if she were shorn there. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that word is there. Um, so when we look at this, what I want to show you is that where we have the article here, the head, we do not have the article right here, but we do here. Every man praying or prophesying with, uh, uh, against his own head or has his own head against his head. Um, is that how it says uncovered? No, because that's covered, not uncovered. Against, okay, having his head, yep, okay, okay. Um, every man praying or prophesying, having his head, and then this kata there would be uncovered, that's meaning against, against his head. He dishonors the head. Notice that we have the article there as well. So this head is the thing on top of his neck. It's speaking of a head. And then the head is speaking of the same head that is Christ. And then we see the same construction in this next verse. So all of that to tell you, to show you that... um, that the, the idea here is every man praying or prophesying, having his physical head covered, dishonors his authoritative head, Christ. Every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her physical head uncovered dishonoreth her physical head, the man. For that is even all at one as if she were shaven. Now, what's the... Um, and then he goes on to say, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Um, the idea of it being a shame for her to be shorn or shaven. Uh, this goes back actually for both um, the, the, the idea of, of shaving one's head as a, um, as a cultural sign of shame is one that has a long and storied history. Um, when David sent his um, servants to... Uh, to Amalek to comfort him after the death of his father. The son doesn't know why they're there. His advisors say these guys are spies, so he shaves half their beards, cuts off half their garments, and sends them back to David. And uh, they are deeply shamed, and they actually have to stay in the city until their beards grow back and their hair grows back. And then, of course, they change their garments. Within, so within culture, there is, there is this natural cultural Negativity, this this dishonor that comes with being shaven. On top of that, um, in Greek culture, the temple prostitutes were characteristically those who were who the women would be completely shaved, uh, their heads 
completely shaven as well. Uh, part of that was the disgracefulness of their profession. The other part of that was uh, to cut down on diseases because they were um, in, a, in a profession that uh, disease would spread quickly. So there was this idea where every woman that would be in the church of Corinth would have a natural uh, inclination to see a shaved head as something which is abhorrent or something which is dishonoring or a shame to her. And Paul says, for a woman to pray uncovered with her head uncovered is no different than if she were actually physically shaven. Questions, thoughts on that? Okay. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power. That word power there is the word authority on her head because of the angels. So this idea here that Paul appealing to Genesis where the Bible tells us that the woman was made out of the man and that the woman was created for the man and then, of course, they became helpmeets. We know from the scriptures, once again, that this is not a superiority, inferiority as it relates to God's created order, as it relates to the image of God in man. However, we do see that there is a orderly arrangement to creation and that that orderly arrangement is by design. Remember, as it relates to submission, we're talking about authority and design. We're not talking about value or capability. So then we have this statement. Nevertheless, the, um, Paul does say, and, and as far as the, the question, uh, for this cause ought a woman to have authority on her head. That's an important verse. She ought to have authority or power on her head. The idea there being that she ought to reflect in her manner submission or, or her authority. We'll come back to that. And it says because of the angels. No one really knows exactly why that is. Um, that what, what it is about a woman expressing submission that uh, what the connection is between that and angels. Has anyone heard a theory on that that, that you've, you've found valuable? I think it was talked about, I don't know if we've heard it teaching just in our own reading, mm. um, because a couple of other passages that talk about the angels in the church mm. um, seem to be also kind of important. Just wondered if there was um, God trying to show the angels because of Satan's rebellion, uh, what authority it should yeah, and that's, that's very possible. God wanting to show or demonstrate to the angels the proper authority as Satan being one who came outside of that authority. Um, several different theories. I've not found one that really resonates like, yes, 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 this, this makes all of the dominoes fall into place. I'm still working on that. Um, and looking for that theory that would say why it is that it's so important. Uh, we know that the angels desire to look into salvation. We know that, um, uh, we, know that we, we have this, this example here of because of the angels, women need to have authority on their head. And this could have something to do with 
this play on words with head, which head is it? And then, you know, the idea of a woman having authority on her head, um, but just not quite sure where that's coming from. We'll figure it out one day. Notice here that Paul does express, you say, okay, so the Bible says that man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. All right, well, that works great for Genesis, but every generation after Genesis, not so much, right? And that's what we see here in verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God, right? So we acknowledge and recognize this, and this is something that that has always been the case. And again, when we talk about the the concept of men going to war, of men, uh, uh, um, and and it's it's perhaps not as... as, as emphasized in this generation or not as obvious in this generation as it has been in almost every other generation prior to the the 19th and 20th centuries where uh, the professions that men would lend themselves unto would be dangerous right they would they would do things they would go out and they would take they would they would put their lives on the line to provide for their wives. They would, they would sacrifice, they would yield their bodies, sacrifice their bodies, exchange their bodies to provide for their families. Of course, in times of war, men do the same. And all of this is from this idea that, yes, though the woman is of the man, yet the man is by the woman, right? Women are the, the future of every society, Every society only continues into the future because there are women here to bear children and to bring the next generation and to raise them into maturity. And so we see Paul recognize that there and acknowledge that, um, that this is not about value or about inferiority. This is about design. Now remember, our context here is women having head coverings in the church, and our context is the ordinances, the things that, in this case, the thing that Paul encouraged them to exercise in the church, and he's pleased that they were doing so. So, he says, judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. We'll get back to that in a minute. Now, so here we have where the controversy has sometimes gone in scriptures. The first is, many say, okay, by the end of this we see that when Paul is talking in the ordinances about women having a head covering, what it's talking about is long hair. And so, to that end, there's been a contingency of women that have intentionally maintained long hair as a means by which to to, um, suffice this principle. Now, it seems unlikely to me that that is actually what Paul was praising them for within this assembly. It seems unlikely to me that what Paul was praising them for is that they maintained long hair. And the reason why is because as he talks through this, he, he um, talks about a woman praying with her head uncovered. And then he says it's, it's, it's no different than if she were shaven. And if she's not covered, let her also be shorn. 
For this cause ought to a woman have power on her head. And so we see this idea of not just living, but praying or prophesying having her head covered. Um, I don't understand why Paul would emphasize a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered if we were talking about, like, say, hair length. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He would say, your women have their head covered or don't have their head covered. I don't know why he would specify prayer and prophecy. I don't know why he would specify that there, is, there are these things that a woman should not do if her head is not uncovered. Unless what he's saying there is there are certain women in the church who should or, or should not do these based upon how long their hair is. But once again, it seems as though culturally there was some other covering here. That they were actually covering their head in some way beyond just their hair. However, then we do see this nature element to it. And the nature element is that in every culture, we find this, this natural expectation, or this natural idea that as far as women and men, there's a very different head cover, uh, there's a very different hair style that, that goes along with femininity and masculinity. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is you have this natural covering, nature itself. And within nature itself, men are predisposed to have short hair and women are predisposed to have longer hair. Right? We're not necessarily saying lengths here, but we're saying that there are very definitive uh, look or style differences between men and between women. And we see those, and those things seem to be kind of baked into the cake as it relates to all cultures around the world, as it relates to all peoples. And this is even outside of a knowledge of God. So what Paul is then saying is he says, if this is something that you find even in nature, how much more should it be exhibited or manifested in the church through what it would seem to be would be some, some nature of a woman covering, a physical covering over her head. And of course, we, we see this in various church cultures. You um, see this among the Amish and the Mennonites where they'll have some sort of head covering. Of course, you see it uh, in Islam, uh, but theirs is not based upon our book. Theirs is based upon a a very different book. Um, And you will also see it in various churches, Christian churches in various ways, where a woman will wear something. As a matter of fact, this was why women wore hats in the assembly back in the day. They'd get those very nice, lovely hats with all the flowers and whatnot, and the women would, all, all the women would wear a hat, and it was a means by which to accomplish this purpose in the assembly. They would wear a hat as a means by which to reflect this submission. So, this is what we have here. But then we come to verse 16, and this is where things get very interesting. But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Anyone want to take a stab at what Paul means by that? Sarah? Yeah. Paul says this is an ordinance. It's a custom. This is not something that is do or die. If, a, if there's a man that's contentious about this, it's not something that you have to make a huge deal out of. We have no such custom, even the churches of God. 
And so we see things within the church. Nature itself says that a man with long hair, it's a shame to him. But if a man comes in with long hair, it's not going to be a make or break issue. If a woman comes in with a shaved head, it's not going to be a make or break issue. We have our reasons why. We, 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 we see this, Paul saying that these things are a shame to him. Okay, so as a general rule, we want to live up to those. We, at Legacy Baptist Church in particular, are very, very uh, keen on the emphasis, the distinction between masculinity and femininity. And so we try to encourage that among God's people. But we are also not going to make this a huge deal because this is a physical manifestation of something. And this is what we get down to. When we talk about head coverings in the church, is it a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. But let me ask you this question. Does a woman putting a doily on her head explicitly mean that she's submitting herself to anyone or anything? No. It doesn't. Does a woman wearing a hat mean that she is submissive? It does not. So we have a custom. We have a tradition that Paul encourage them in the Corinthian church. We don't see him write it to the other churches. Maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. But we see a tradition that was exhorted in the Corinthian church, and that tradition was exhorted specifically to show this distinction. And of course, Corinth was the capital of the region. It was a very pagan city. And no doubt, Paul was very, very keen on them putting a huge distinction between themselves and the unbelievers. But what is the operative point of women covering their heads? It wasn't to cover their heads. It was to express submission, right? And so as we think through the idea... The first thing that we think through in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the woman have a mindset of, the, the custom is a head covering, but the principle is a head that is covering, or that is a covering. In other words, that women acknowledge a design in the church, and that within that design, they are not to be the head, they are to be in submission. And that's the principle. The ordinance is that women came in with their heads covered when they were praying or prophesying. And uh, I, my, my wife and I went to a Russian church uh, one time, and it was really neat. It was on a, a Wednesday night that we went, and they did prayer in the assembly. And this would have been after the preaching time. They had a couple of men preach. And then they would do prayer in the assembly. And there would be various, uh, I only saw older women uh, get up, but they would get up and they would put, put a head covering on. They would pray. They'd sit down and they'd take it back off. What they were doing there was they were reflecting this ordinance 
And they were reflecting it in the manner in which Paul gave it, which is when you are praying or prophesying. And we'll talk about what prophesying is when we get to um, 1 Corinthians 14. So they would put it on to pray or prophesy as a show of submission. That though they are contributing to the body, and by the way, we already see from this that women prayed and prophesied in the body. Though they were contributing to the body, they were doing so in a manner that yet reflected their understanding that they were under authority. And they were not claiming authority. They were not seeking to usurp authority, which we'll talk about more. But they were acknowledging a claim of authority over them. And they were doing what they were doing under the authority that they were given. Now, we've bantered around in times past various ways to do this. Early on at Legacy Baptist Church, um, we used to have a lot more, uh, you know, Sunday morning has always been me praying, but Sunday evening we used to have let anyone pray. And it wasn't just men, women could pray as well. And so that would happen from time to time. And I personally rather enjoyed that. Um, But one of the things that we used to talk about is how can we manifest this principle. Is it, should we ask the women of the church to have a head covering? And if they want to pray, they cover their heads and they pray. The other thing that we had talked about was the idea that when a woman in the church desired to pray in the assembly, that her head would stand up with her. So that would be her husband, her father, or if she was not, she didn't have a husband or father in the assembly, then I would stand up as the representative head. And so she could pray and it would be acknowledged through his standing that she was praying uh, with his consent under his authority in submission. That it was a submissive prayer. It was a submissive statement. And we talked about that. All of those things are, are attempts to have an ordinance that would reflect. But all of that ordinance to reflect is simply meant to teach something that is happening in the heart. And what's happening in the heart is the essence of this, right? That when women come into the assembly, you come in with a, a, a submissive posture. Again, probably not the best word, posture. But with a submissive spirit. Understanding the role that is yours to play in the assembly, of course, which is where we're getting to. That's the intent. That's where we're headed. So what we do not see, especially because of that last verse, verse 16, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. What we do not see here is an explicit command that every woman must align with as it relates to her head covering. To whatever degree you feel compelled to do so, Ladies or husbands, fathers, whatever it might be, do so. If that means having something on your head, put something on your head. If, that's, if, if, if you believe that that is a, a, a right way to express the submission that you desire to express. Now, don't put something on your head and then come into the church unsubmissive. Because you're, you're not doing yourself any good just by putting something on your head. That's just emptiness. Now, for many other women in our assembly, they've chosen to do long hair or, 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 you know, for whatever other reasons, but long hair. That's fine. If you want to do long hair, do long hair. As a, as a manifestation of your submission, if you want to do it for that reason, by all means do it, but you don't have to. It's certainly not a requirement. And if you are going to have your long hair for that reason, make sure that the manner in which you come into the assembly is expressing that reason 
in your, is, is, is a reflection of your heart. But as it stands, what is expected is that each one of us would step into places of the context of, of our worship in our proper place, where we as men come in, submitted to our authority, which is Christ, and then where the women come in, submitted to their authority, which is the men, the male leadership, the men of the church, in the way that we've already expressed. And then an ordinance we could put in place, some of us have put in place, as a means by which to teach or to express that in an, in an external way. And that's a fine thing and a, and a good thing to have an exterior manifestation of that, but it's not a requirement. If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Thoughts, questions, confusion, disagreements, 